would invite you to turn in your Bibles or to turn on your Bibles and go to Psalm 8, taking a bit of a different direction from the Ezekiel series this morning. And I want to reflect with you together on on one of my favorite psalms in all of the Psalter, uh, written by David, obviously early in the book, uh, and perhaps familiar to some of you. uh, There's a familiar praise chorus based on, well, at least the first part of verse 1. And so Psalm 8, as I said, is one of my favorites. Uh, It starts out in a really interesting, I mean, kind of a a way that... Uh, uh, that's mysterious, not immediately obvious what it means. It says, So the choir master, uh, according to the Giddith, that's the, the superscript, right under, means right if it says eight, and then the tiny print next to it is what I'm talking about, before verse one. So to the choir master, according to the Giddith. And if you've got the ESV, it, it's got a footnote that just says, probably a musical or liturgical term. Translation, we have no idea what this means. Okay? There are basically two options, though, as, as uh, scholars have kind of thought through it. Uh, Giddith might mean tune from Gath. So think of Goliath of Gath, the one that David took down. Uh, and so it could be that it was a tune from that part. There were, there were Giddithites, that is, men from Gath, who ended up joining Israel, being bound to Israel, probably after the Goliath incident, because, I mean, wouldn't you? Um, and so uh, some of them were among David's mighty men, actually. And so it could be that it was a familiar tune from Gath, although the Hebrew word actually means winepress. The word, the word behind uh, Giddith means winepress, so it could also be a harvest tune. So like they'd bring in the harvest at the end of the season and then sing a song to rejoice, or maybe even sing a song while they were working, like a, like a work song. It could be that that's the idea. There. So this is, this is to the same tune that we sing when we bring in the harvest with great joy. The reason why some think that is because there are two other places in the Psalter where this tune, if it's the tune, gets mentioned. And there are also psalms of, of joy, rejoicing, happiness, exaltation, that kind of thing. And so, uh, so, it, so it could be that people would joyfully sing this tune, if that's what it's talking about. Uh, when they bring in the harvest, same tune is used for Psalm 8. And the psalm begins and ends with kind of these bookends. And so uh, why, don't, why don't I start by just reading through the whole thing. So beginning at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. By the way, that's, uh, you might notice a distinction there. One's in all capitals. One is not. So that is the first one is the name of God. The second one is addressing Him as Lord. So uh, in Hebrew, it would be O Yahweh, our Adonai. Okay. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. 
And so you saw then, the psalm begins with this declaration of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And then it ends with the same. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. What happens in verse 1 though, is we start in the heavens and then we drop down, way down. So if you'll follow me. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. You have set Your glory above the skies. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that God's glory is located somewhere next to the International Space Station. It means probably that David is picking the highest thing he can think of. Right? So what is the highest thing I can think of? I'm going to go with the sky. God's glory is higher still. That's the point. Uh, When Jesus talked about faith that could move mountains into the heart of the sea, he He wasn't actually saying that we, His people, should spend most of our time focusing on Uh, geological reassignment on moving the Alps into the Atlantic. What Jesus is talking about is He's taking the highest and biggest thing His audience can think of and putting it in the lowest, deepest place they can think of. So it is with faith. That by faith in Christ, mountains of sin and selfishness and anger and greed and lust and regret can be buried in some deep unknown Mariana Trench level place never to be seen or heard from again. So it is here. David takes the heavens and says the Lord's glory, His majesty, His beauty, His power is higher than, let me think, let me think, the sky. And he goes from talking about the height and the glory of God and the majesty and power to verse 2 little babies. Well, that's interesting. What's going on here? There is a principle in Christianity I want all of you to be familiar with. You probably know it, but maybe we just need to remind each other about it from time to time. That is, God always wins. God always triumphs over His enemies. In our shorter catechism, question 26, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. Really good news for us. Terrible news for pagans. God always takes the victory. That's the point. He always settles the score. He always triumphs. Although, by the way, many times in the history of God's people and in world history more broadly, it often looks like He fails. This is exactly what the cross was, right? In Acts chapter 4, we uh, recall all the people were gathered together. So, is it not working? Okay. I'm going to go to Acts 4. Oh, there it is. Yay. Uh, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And we, we get the list. Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What then happened was the crucifixion of the Son of God. Seemingly utter defeat. 
What looked like the moment of greatest defeat was in fact God's greatest victory though. And so God has enemies. Men and women utterly opposed to God, opposed to His gospel, opposed to human flourishing. And God often shames the strength of the proud by putting it up against weakness and then winning. The best example is probably David against Goliath. This is how God delights to work. By taking a young boy, setting him against a giant, and watching tables turn. God means to shut up His enemies here in Psalm 8 with what? Not with weapons of war, but with the cries of little infants. Verse 2, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your enemies. So the psalmist acknowledges that God has enemies, and the, the weapon that God uses is what's coming out of the lips of little babies. What on earth does that even mean? It's really astonishing to think about that when unbelieving man rages against God with all his fine-sounding philosophies and life experience, you know who's smarter? The babbling kid in the back of the sanctuary. The babbling covenant child in the back of the room. And as he grows up, that babbling becomes a little bit more intelligible, but not to God. God understood what he was saying the whole time. God silences His foes with weapons we would never imagine, like crosses and tombs and water and bread and wine and words and baby noises. We tend to devalue the simple things that God gives. We think that being, sometimes we're tempted to think that being God's people means that we have to do this mission that He's given us by displays of our own strength and brilliance. Jesus doesn't have time for that. <laughs> what I mean, I think back to the moment in the Gospels when, uh, when the disciples were insisting that Jesus didn't have time for little ones. That was their attitude. They bring the children to the disciples... And the disciples basically say, wouldn't you be more comfortable in the cry room though? Isn't that where you ought to be? Take them away. Take them away from Jesus. Get these kids out of here. The reason why I, parents, the reason why I love having little ones in the worship service is because we don't gather here to do big, impressive stuff for God. We gather that God might do His work that He means to do among us. And He doesn't start when we turn 16. The Bible says He works from the least to the greatest. He calls His people together so that He can manifest His glory according to His ways, according to His designs, according to the way He does things. And He says that the mouths of our enemies get silenced when the babies start praising. What do we do then with this proclamation about the voices of little ones? One thing we do, and that I would encourage you to do, is to do with it what Jesus did with it. So go to Matthew 21, please. Matthew chapter 21, verses 14, uh, starting at verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him, that is Jesus in the temple. This is, this is just after the verse about him turning over the tables. And he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Don't you hear what they're saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read Psalm 8? Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? The blind are seeing. Brokenness is being restored. Lame are walking. And children are worshiping, by the way. And the scholars are mad. The studied ones. The ones with all the religious education and experience behind them. And Jesus makes this a matter of revelation. Can you go back to the uh, Matthew text, please? Jesus makes this a matter of revelation. Next bit. Do you hear what these are saying? He says, yes, if you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. He goes to the revealed Word to say, God has already said this. Are you not listening? Jesus makes this a matter of revelation. That God has shown these things to children and kept them from you. God does not say to any of you today, the reason why you don't know me as well as you ought is you really haven't had the proper sort of education. To be clear, I believe in education. And I certainly believe in ministerial training and uh, in seminaries. I'm a big fan. But in our seminaries and in our training, we must never convey the idea that once you've worked hard enough in your education, then God will reveal Himself to you. Rather, our seminaries should teach men how to be in awe of their God and Savior who has revealed Himself by His Word. They should be trained to teach the children and to ladle soup until they get low, as low as children. And then how to remain there until they realize that the wisest saints in the kingdom that they've ever met are little children in the kingdom. Not little children, by the way, in their thinking. Not little children in their emotions. But little children in their wonder and awe of all that God has done. Now that, that, I, that distinction I just made is a really important one. Because the the biblical call to childlikeness is not a call to be like Peter Pan. It's not, I don't want to grow up, I just want to be a kid forever. I want to do kid things and have no responsibilities and behave like a fool and forget self-control and self-discipline because Jesus told me to be like a little child. No, the call to be like a child is not unrestrained immaturity or uh, vocational laziness. That laziness in in work, in the work that God has given you to do. Jesus' call to be like children is the call to simple faith. And being unafraid to express wonder at the things of God. You know when you express wonder at the things of God, it can make you look stupid sometimes? Right? 
And little children do not seem to have this problem of being terribly bothered by being in awe of the things that amaze them, right? And so I have to confess to you, like, one of the things I'm looking forward to the most as a a dad is to get to do things for the first time, right? Like, you know, I, I don't just take in the beauty of God's creation and, and go to the beach for the first time, right? And watch Star Wars for the first time because that's one of the great gifts of God. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Jesus' call to be like children is that of simple faith. Unex- unafraid to express delight in the simplest of, of things. I mean, that expression that they're shouting out, they're shouting out Hosanna in the temple, right? Save us. And the resident theologians are saying, where did they learn to talk like that? Jesus is basically saying it was given to them. It was given to them. Out of the mouths you have ordained. It was given to them to speak that way. If we think we've got it figured out, we're done for because the only way that we learn anything is that the Lord Jesus Himself reveals it to us. It is not come and be educated and if you strive hard enough in your education, you'll finally know God. That's a lie that a lot of, a lot of seminary students buy. Let's go back to Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. Still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. David here says that all the heavens, all the stars, all the, the pictures that NASA can find. Did you see the picture that came out a week or so ago? Right, The picture that NASA found of all these, these galaxies and it was going up everywhere. All of it, all of it, all of it is the work of, Psalm 8, your fingers. The Lord's fingers. Now, I would have expected him to say work of your hands. Work of your mighty outstretched arm, right? Because that sounds cooler and we're talking about the heavens that are so awesome and amazing. But no, the idea is all these stunning, staggering, spinning, starry skies and galaxies... It's finger work. It's nothing. That's God practicing piano with one hand. (laughs) And there is a, I don't know what to call it, perhaps a secular humanist tendency, maybe an atheistic tendency, that when faced with the grandeur of creation, to be driven deeper into nihilism. So I, I observed this interestingly, I thought interestingly anyway, on, on social media when NASA released that photo. The response of some was to be driven into a kind of nihilism. If you don't know what nihilism is, kids, nihilism is the teaching that life is meaningless. That's the shortest way I can put it. Nihilism is the belief that life is meaningless. It doesn't have any meaning. And some take a wonderful you know, picture of, of God's creation and the heavens and use it to drive themselves deeper into nihilism. I saw the, 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 the photo that came out, and some people were basically taking it and saying, you know, look at this. Look at this. Isn't it amazing? And you think you matter. Right? You foolish little speck of dust. You think you matter. Look, if you don't, if you don't have 
a God in heaven. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And you're observing the wonder, sheer, staggering, unfathomable size of this universe. You might be driven to the conclusion, I'm pretty worthless and insignificant. And that's the impulse of a lot of people when they observe the size of the universe. The attitude is the universe is so big in comparison, in comparison with the whole universe, this earth is maybe at best a bit of a grain of sand. And I am the microscopic dust mite on this on the sand, on the grain of sand called earth. And the nihilistic conclusion is we must not matter anyway. We're so small and insignificant. It sounds almost like humility, doesn't it? It's not. Saying you are nothing more than a meaningless bunch of molecules is not humility. Humility is, I know I'm a sinner, but God has rescued me and has a purpose for me. And is it not stupidly amazing how He cares for one such as I? You see, that's where David goes with it. David does not say, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I say I'm insignificant. No, he says, what am I that you are mindful of me? The Son of Man that you care for Him. David doesn't look at the vastness of the heavens and say, we must not matter. His reaction is, why has God made sure I know that man matters? What is man that you are mindful of him? Do you get the difference? You, re- you really must. Because it is the difference between rejoicing and despairing. Verse 5. We'll, we'll touch on verse 5 for a moment. We'll come back to it. Yet you have made him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Crowned him with glory and honor. So having established that God cares about man, David talks about the blessings God has given. I'm going to talk about more of those blessings in a moment. But what he has said so far is, you've made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. This passage gets handled in the New Testament, and so you might uh, the, uh, the word angels is used. It is interesting that, that uh, in Hebrew the word is Elohim, so it, which, which can mean God, it can mean heavenly beings. The word is a bit flexible in that sense. And so, but the idea is, you've you made him a little lower than then the majesty of heaven, we're created in God's image and so on, crowned with glory and honor. That's what Adam was in the garden, crowned with glory and honor. Staying in the garden, what do we go on to read? You have given him, man, dominion over the works of your hands. That should ring a bell. That's Genesis 1 and 2. You have put all things under his feet. And then you get this list, right? And, and basically... Um, I mean, look what's on the list. Sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea. In other words, survey the land, look around. If it can swim, fly, or crawl, man has dominion over it. Now this concept of dominion is an important one biblically. I want to talk about it just for a minute. Because the way the New Testament authors use Psalm 8 is somewhat surprising. They take it in directions that might surprise you. So I'm going to ask you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews picks up Psalm 8 and uses it in a really fascinating sort of way. He takes the principle that we just read about. You know, Man was created lower than the heavenly beings, uh, and yet in creation crowned with glory and honor. And he basically says, wait a second... I know of one who was made lower than the angels. 
and then later crowned with glory and honor. You see? Verse 9, Hebrews 2.9, we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So the Son was made a little lower than the angels for a time. That's the incarnation. God the Son took on a lowly station, made lower than the angels, so to speak. Angels being the perfect word there, isn't it? Because He couldn't have said lower than God because Jesus is the God-man. And so, referring to Jesus in His human nature, He said He's he's made a little lower than the angels. And after His resurrection and ascension, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor at the Father's right hand. Because you see, Jesus was made like us. He entered into a state of humiliation, but only temporarily, only for a little while. Once He walked out of the grave, and ascended into heaven, the New Testament idea is that when He ascended into heaven, He took mankind with Him. And so now we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. You've heard that language before. Furthermore, it is as though the author of Hebrews is saying, walk this out with me now. Follow me here. This one Jesus made lower than the angels. This one Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And now... Going back to verse 6 of Psalm 8, this one has, you know, go to the next verse, been given dominion, and all things have been put under his feet. So he's like following the logic of Psalm 8, but in a way that is really unexpected. So he's saying, I know of one who was made lower than the angels. I know of one who was then crowned with glory and honor. I know of one who has taken dominion over the earth, and everything is being put under his feet. So in Hebrews we learn, and this is so good, verse 8, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Him. And all of God's people living on planet earth said, Amen. We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. This is why we get confused when we hear something like, Jesus is reigning and He's putting all His enemies under His feet. And we say, well, you know... Pastor, I watched the news last night and it don't really look like that. Yes, maybe the problem is you got too much news or too much YouTube and you're not hearing what God is saying. We don't yet see everything put into subjection, but we do see Jesus. We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him. Many Christians in many places, I think, have perhaps taken their eyes off Jesus over the last, I think, especially 200 or so years. But God is at work, putting all things under His feet. And Jesus, by His Word and Spirit, is making that more and more obvious over the course of history. Nobody ever expected South Korea to explode and receive the Gospel the way it has. Nobody ever saw that coming in the global south where the gospel is spreading at a rate that's astonishing. Nobody ever saw that coming in Iran, where I think it is that over the last 20 years, there's been more conversions to Christ than in the whole history of Iran, like combined. So, amen. 
So how is God doing this? What is God up to? What is His method for accomplishing this putting all things under His feet? Well, go to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you something. Ephesians chapter 1. My first answer to the question, how is God accomplishing this, is by way of the Great Commission. My second answer is found in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Oh, sorry. Hang on. Hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. Okay. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. You notice Father, Son, and Spirit there. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You should hear Great Commission language there. All authority is mine. Rule, power, dominion. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put, verse 22, all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus Christ, by the work of his people, the great commission being deployed out into the world, is subduing the world because all authority has been given to him. Therefore, go and win the nations. This is how Jesus means to win the world. To Himself and for Himself. We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we do see Him by faith. We will preach and pray and let little covenant children babies utter songs of praise until the whole world is conquered. To take you back to verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians 1. He put all things under His feet and gave Him, that is Jesus, His head over all things to the church. So, everything's been placed under His feet. Now, follow me here. Everything's been placed under Jesus' feet. And the church, that's us, is His body. Everything's been placed under His feet. And the church is His body. So, I'm fairly certain body includes feet. Do you see? God is putting all things under His feet by the work of the church. By the work of the church. Namely, the preaching of the gospel, the joyful blessing of God giving Himself to us in His sacraments, and it's by those things that He conquers. Jesus is conquering, and the preached gospel of His church is how we do it. And in His name we conquer. There is work, Now, when I I use language like conquering and Jesus conquering, some people get a little uncomfortable because that sounds nearly political, so I want to make a quick comment. There is work that God has given uh, civil authorities, we would say the state, to do that only the state should be doing. There is work for the church to do that only the church should be doing. There is work for the family to do that only the family should be doing. And a lot of the problems in our day come from the reality that the state wants to do all of it, but never mind. 
we've let it happen. So I don't mean to say that the church is meant to rule all spheres of life. I do mean that Jesus means to rule all spheres of life. And He means to put all of it under His feet. Let's go back to Psalm 8. You've given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under His feet, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. What Hebrews 2 shows us is that Jesus is accomplishing His mission. He's putting His enemies under His feet. He's come to conquer by way of this proclamation of the Gospel, by way of this proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. Can you imagine it? This maker of the heavenlies, this crafter of the skies, is not only mindful of you, not only cares about you, but has come in flesh to forgive you. You live in His world. Everything that He has made, you're surrounded by it. Everything in it, the work of His fingers. And the reason that we are often so fear-stricken, anxiety-stricken, confused about what we are for and who we are and why we're here is that we live in someone else's world and then we try to commit ourselves to pretending that He doesn't exist or that He doesn't matter. Yeah, that's going to lead to a lot of trouble. One of the greatest gifts God has given His people is that of being His people, set apart and distinct from the world. Even if it earns you scorn. Even if it earns you hardship. Even if it earns you pain. I think that we take for granted the kindness of God in what I said earlier, the, 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 the power of the testimony of God's people to bring in the nations. And so, look, following after this Jesus, this exalted King, might, no, will cost you something in this world. But I don't wonder if a day will come when those who despise you most will come back saying, I know that you had something that I can't find anywhere else. I wasn't willing to have it. And I hated it because I wasn't willing to have it. Can you help me? You will say in that moment, O Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Because you are bringing everything in subjection to yourself. That's the day that we wait for. It's, all of, it's what all of our work and our anticipation is going into. That our Lord Jesus is at work. Do not go by the news to determine whether or not Jesus is at work. Do not go by the news to determine whether or not Jesus is conquering, because let's be honest, if He was, would they tell you? So we trust in the coming King who is at work in this world to do marvelous things. And yes, marvelous things with little specks of dust like us on the grain of sand. Because He cares for you. Because He cares for you. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name 
in all the earth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, we need strength for this work. We need strength for this time that we're in. Strength to believe, grace to persevere, grace to love our neighbors, help from on high. And so you've come to meet us here at your table to remind us that as little babies praise you and silence foes and enemies and avengers, to remind us that very often simple obedience is, is just coming and receiving all that you are for us in Jesus. And so we ask that you would fit our hearts with joy as we go out today to love you and to serve our neighbors. In the name of our conquering King Jesus, Amen.